Hello and welcome to another episode of the Kids Media Podcast. I'm Andy Williams, creative director and producer with around 20 years experience in kids and family entertainment. And my brilliant co-host is Joe Redfern. Hello there. One of the things that still excites me uh, and challenges me actually after many years working in kids media is how to combine content and toys or consumer products, which we know can be a significant revenue driver uh, and kids have always wanted to own toys and merchandise based on their favorite characters after all it's how they articulate their fandom uh, it's a way of expressing themselves but we creators need to be aware of the balance between good content that entertains or maybe educates kids and the power that that content can have in driving demand for product amongst those kids so that being said the world of toys and consumer products is fascinating so today we're talking to two veterans of the toy industry ian downs and richard north so welcome to episode three of the kids media podcast hi ian and richard welcome to the third episode of the kids media podcast uh, would you both mind introducing yourself to our listeners so i'm ian downs i'm the um, owner of uh, Start Licensing, and Start Licensing is a bespoke uh, licensing agency. Uh, we've been, um, we're an independent agency. We've been established for 18 years, um, and we sort of have a, a kind of an eclectic mix of clients, which include uh, people like Ardman Animations, obviously in the kids space. Uh, we also represent um, Asterix, the uh, classic comic book character um, and that goes right through to at the other end of the spectrum we work with um, a heritage uh, client the Ashmolean Museum which is part of the University of Oxford and uh, I guess just very briefly to say prior immediately prior to setting up start licensing um, I was the group managing director of Fox Kids which uh, for those of you who are a bit older might remember it as a kids network uh, it was in something like 27 countries. It eventually got acquired by Disney. And during my time there, I ran the consumer products division and we worked with properties like Digimon and Power Rangers. And I was involved in licensing, but also uh, to an extent, uh, program acquisition as well. So that gave me quite a nice background for my own company. I'm Richard North, CEO and co-founder of Wowster. Uh, we started the business about 15 years ago. I met a couple of scientists who were well, scientists by academia, but they were inventors by nature. And they'd invented a towel of all things, a bathroom towel, half of which was brown and half of it was white. And on the white side, it said the word face. And on the brown side, it said the word arse. Um, so was, <laughs> and and that, that towel, we went on to sell about 5 million pieces of that globally. A lot of people said it would never work. That was our very first invention. We were in the gift industry. We moved into toys um, in about 2009, and we went into licensing fairly early on, Science Museum, Mensa, um, some of the BBC's licenses like Top Gear and um, and others, Doctor Who. Um, And today we create toys in largely tier one licensed brands. And uh, our guiding mantra, is to create toys that elicit that that response. Wow, when a kid plays with them. 
Awesome. That's great. Well, welcome and thank you for being here. So I'm going to come to you first, um, Ian. We know that kids' consumption habits are changing rapidly. Arguably, they were before lockdown, but they've been made even faster after the last 18 months. So I want to know, firstly, from you, and then we'll come to you, Richard, but in your opinion, how has this affected consumer product demand? Yeah, no, I think it's um, interesting because, I mean, first thing I'd say, and, and there are, um, you know, th this is kind of changing, but licensing probably is one of those industries which um, probably suffers sometimes from a lack of formal research. So before coming into licensing, um, I worked in the publishing sector and I also worked in the advertising sector. I worked for a media buying company, and um, particularly during my time in the media buying world, we were awash with research and we kind of knew more or less every minute by minute what was happening on television because I was a television time buyer. Um, and in contrast, during my time in licensing, one of the things that I've kind of noted is that there has been kind of a lack of kind of use of formal research um, that that is changing and there's more kind of access to qualitative and quantitative research uh, but perhaps not as much as there could be and should be and I think that's a kind of a, a measure of of you know the industry and some areas that it can mature into but turning that specifically to the question I think sometimes we work on assumption here and hearsay um, rather than necessarily formal data. Um, obviously, we can look at things like uh, toy sales and so on in the future. But my, my instinct is that um, certain categories, from what I'm talking to people, particularly in the toy world, have performed well during lockdown. So it's more of a kind of what I would say um, is a micro kind of thing rather than a macro thing. So um, areas like jigsaws and board games apparently have, have fared well because obviously people have had more time at home to to uh, kind of play play with them, use those as products, and there's been a bit of a, a kind of a renaissance in, in in those categories. I think certain areas of publishing have done very well. Um, I think also uh, similar to sort of like the the games and jigsaws. I think uh, an area that has shown growth during this period and will continue to show growth is um, arts and crafts. I think that's been a very strong category. Um, and then I think um, another trend that um, I've noticed, which I think is was happening anyway, but I think has been kind of fired up by lockdown is the move towards more personalized products in licensing. So personalization, uh, whether that's things like companies like Snugsies, where you can kind of go online and order mini me's of you i've actually got one of myself which is quite frightening as uh, wallace from wallace and gromit but um they they that's a sort of like hyper personalized service and that appears to be proving popular with consumers and obviously works well in licensing um but obviously another big area that's worked very well and as consumption has gone up is is in the area of online gaming um and again licensing is playing a strong part in that i know Again, anecdotally from my work with Ardman, who have invested quite a lot in uh, casual gaming, uh, they, they've noticed um, a very big sort of rise in kind of consumption of, of their, their games. Um, and in many ways, whilst it hasn't completely filled the gap of where perhaps they've lost out in other areas of consumer products during the lockdown, it's, it's certainly helped in terms of um, 
revenues through things like advertising and so on but also in terms of how people are kind of interacting with the characters it's certainly mm -hmm. helped when for example a business like Ardman um, one of its kind of foundation stones or cornerstones um, are their live events so obviously during lockdown live events couldn't happen but what seems to have happened is that people have kind of displaced their passion for the characters from a live kind of format into online um, gaming and so on. So, so I would say they're, they're the sort of the highlights from, from my side. But I think what we've probably seen is a bit like the, the thing about personalization is that things that were starting to happen um, have kind of um, increased at pace. Uh, and also final thing to say is we've also seen obviously a rise in um, e-commerce and e-commerce e retailers. Um, and within that, that's certainly benefited certain categories like uh, apparel being a, a very good example of that. Mm, mm, thank you. Yeah, that's that, that's really interesting. I, I, I think you're right. It's um, it's it's pressed fast forward on a lot of trends that were already beginning to emerge. Be interesting to see whether they revert or whether those trends continue. How about you, Richard? What have you noticed in it, the changes been driven by lockdown? I, from from our perspective as a company, um, the first six weeks, seven weeks of lockdown were a bit of a novelty, really. Everybody working from home, and I remember thinking, "This is this is almost fun because it's different." But um, after that period, um, as, a, as a leader of the business, I actually became quite, quite depressed and, and had a, you know, quite a long period of a low moment. We weren't in any of those categories that Ian mentions there um, and, and articulates on so well. So we weren't in jigsaws and indoor, indoor games. Um, we weren't in out, outdoor toys. And that was another fantastic growth category, wasn't it? You know, the, the trampoline yeah. and all that type of stuff. We weren't in any of those categories. So we're, we're a business that, that, um, that did kind of traditional toys in licensed brands that sold okay through nine months of the year and exploded come Christmas. And what was happening at the time was the retailers were telling us that they wanted to move from FOB, where they had the confidence to commit to big volumes, and moved to, to buying little and often from domestic stock. 18 months ago, we didn't have a single product in the business in domestic stock. We didn't do domestic sales. We were purely FOB. So our business went to zero. Um, so um, it was um, radical times requiring um, sort of radical decisions. So we opened a warehouse, um, just like you said, Joe, we fast-tracked things that we were planning to do. So um, we brought out the warehouse a year ahead of schedule and started bringing stock in and supporting the retailers as and when they opened up. So the, the, the lack of confidence in the market from the retailers affected us and the consumption, going to your, your question, consumption, you know, as I say, Ian's talked about the changes there in, in consumer habits. Um, for the kind of consumption of our products, um, the toys that, that really take off at Christmas, we had that very, very late, um, but big Christmas, which kind of saved our bacon. So the last six or seven weeks of Christmas were a historic high for our company. Thank goodness. <laughs> and, and the change in behaviour of kids, you, you saw this Again, as you said earlier, Joe, this fast tracking of what, what was already happening. So kids 
getting their content content across different screens. So not just now a TV, but you know, a tablet or a smartphone. Consuming uh, content there was driving the brands that were living that were living there. We saw that massively. Uh, we're seeing that continuing. Things like cocoa melon, you know, going through the roof. Um, so yeah, the, this this mass turn to screens, screens and screens, different screens uh, and multi-screen. You know, look, watching the TV, looking at the tablet, looking at a smart device. Amazing. I had a quick follow-up question on that, Richard. Actually, do you think that that radical reworking of kind of what your offer was um, would you have would you have done any of that stuff if it hadn't have been for the pandemic, or do you think? So do you think it's all to kind of the the direction of the, your company because of that? Yeah, I think a lot of people were procrastinating about the uh, their strategies for, for, for many years. You know, going in, going to e-commerce is a good example. You know, a, a lot of us in the industry have talked about having an e-commerce offering for probably the last six or seven years, and probably fifty percent of us have now got one, um, and that probably wouldn't have happened. So yes, it's it's speeded up decision making and um, and strategies that we kind of know to be correct, but we're scared of taking that step. Yeah, a- and that, and the, and there's always kind of today's problem as well, isn't there? Which means that tomorrow's problem keeps being kind of pushed further and further away, unless there's a kind of a real reason to kind of really engage with it and grapple with that. Um, my next question my next question was for you as well richard actually which and ian uh, i'll kind of extend the question to you afterwards given the power of huge studios like disney and even moonbug can smaller kids media brands sustain consumer products or have huge franchise properties got the upper hand in that battle yeah this is a question that i really um kind of uh, went from one extreme to another and, and back again. Um, so if I give a sum, if I give my summary and then I'll explain it, I think um, we, what we're going to see, this is a sort of a prediction, but I think, I think some of it is already happening. So it's probably not a clever one. Um, I think many smaller toy companies, uh, mid-size and smaller toy companies are going to partner with media businesses at a rapid rate. Again, an acceleration of what's happening so we've seen this happen um, in, in most recent times. We've seen it happen with Spin Master, um, with Nickelodeon and with Paw Patrol. You know, so a brand, a product, a strategy, an idea for some content driven by a toy company that knows the kinds of toys that its consumer would like, building that in at the beginning. And I think toy companies have got great insights, but they've always historically been sold a license, been sold content. You know, they're a licensee and, you know, we all know what the licensor is, the owner of the brand. So I think we're going to see a lot of JVs coming out over the next few years and we're kind of just on the, on the, on the cusp of seeing that right now. You know, I've seen where we just make an announcement. Um, we're seeing Moose make announcements. Um, you know, I, I think there's more to come from the likes of Spin Master. And, and, and the gold standard for this, of course, you know, and, and the rule book on this was written many years ago when Hasbro said, hang on, these toy brands, you know, they, they offer content. If the content was on a screen, more kids would have ready, ready access to it. We could build a story. Kids love stories, you know. And so you could see how this was formulating 
And then they they did it in their blueprint for, you know, they they sort of ratified it as a blueprint for their business with these power brands, you know, these seven pillars. Um, so I think we're going to see many, many brands coming out. And, and, and of course, not all of them are going to make it. Moonbug is a great example. But if you think about, about say, Cocoa Melon, I think 10, 11 years ago, when that first made its appearance, that was a husband and wife team uh, with an idea, um, a great idea, and nurtured it and built it. You know, so it wasn't, it, it feels like and looks like an overnight success. But that's 10, 11, 12 years in building. And then Moonbug with some fantastic um, people in there, you know, the industry experts uh, know how to build it even further. And I think there's a, there's a great saying and a, and a book been written on this that what got you here won't get you there. I think that's a classic example of some of these smaller brands where they're entrepreneurial and they have to ask themselves, what do we now need to get to the next level? In the case of perhaps Coco Melon, it was um, merging or selling to Moonbug, a team of industry experts with the financing to take it to the next level. So, but I think early doors, we're going to see um, challenges to, uh, to Disney and to the huge brands from many, many smaller brands. And it's how smart and entrepreneurial those smaller brands can be in their JVs and their deals with other partners. And I think toy companies, are a great place to go to for those kinds of JVs. Interesting. Uh, Ian, what, what were your thoughts on, on that? Um, I, I tend to um, agree with, with Richard. I suppose I'd kind of lean back on some of my experience, even way back to my days at Fox Kids, where um, I think the point that Richard made um, about toy companies partnering with media companies is a, is a good one. Um, and in fact, um, at Fox Kids, we had a very close working relationship with Bandai, for example. So uh, whilst it wasn't maybe as formal um, as a, a kind of a written partnership, we, we developed a, a strong working relationship with them, which grew out of uh, Power Rangers and went into Digimon and into a number of other properties. Um, and I think as Richard identified, one of the benefits of that um, to the TV company or the media company um, is that toy companies do have great insight into trends and consumers, um, but obviously they don't always have the, the outreach that a media partner can, can bring. So I think we will see more of those kind of partnerships. Um, I would also say just um, kind of related to that, I, I expect what we will see is um, what we would traditionally say were sort of TV studios, animation studios, I think we will see that um, they'll come from different industries now as well. So I think we'll see diversification. We already see it with some of the big publishers have got involved in you know, TV development in, in animation and other formats because um, the key there is they have some fantastic content. And uh, without talking in cliches, I think content was always king and will now be king and queen and i think it's it's you know um, there's no monopoly on where a good idea comes from um and i always remember sort of to that point when i was at fox kids um i i attended the cartoon forum which um as i'm sure most people know is a uh, a kind of um, a marketplace for up and coming properties for people who've got ideas for TV shows to to meet with at the time TV companies. 
Um, and I went with a particular brief for Fox Kids, which at the time was, um, it was a boys action channel. So we had a very clear path of what we wanted to, where we wanted to go down. But one of the properties that was showcased at the cartoon forum I, I went to um, in very, very early form was a property called Pepper Pig. Um, and it was presented by the production company. Um, it was uh, optioned by Contender. Then uh, Contender eventually got bought by E1 and E1 obviously eventually got bought by Hasbro. But the reason you know, Peppa Pig, I think, succeeded is it's a bit as Richard was describing it eventually got into the right hands. People could help the production company to amplify it. Then Contender went to E1 and it got amplified even further. And now obviously it Hasbro, it might be supersized. But the thing that made it successful was that it was a good idea. It was a good creative idea. It was original. Um, and I think even though we may have supersized companies, we will still need to have those people, who are creatives who are bringing new, unique and fresh ideas. Licensing thrives off of good ideas. It, it may be that those ideas need to be partnered with other people to, to become higher profile. But I think we will still always need and there'll always be room for the smaller independent creative companies who are who are bringing the fresh thinking to the table yeah i mean i think you're absolutely right and i think with pepper pig there's an element where i mean the three guys that um created that format uh, i think they originally took it to the bbc and the bbc decided it wasn't for them um and and i think joan loft uh, contender deserves kind of an enormous amount of credit as well really because i think she really kind of helped uh, it kind of helped protect that idea and kind of give it the space to to become what it was. And it and again, going back to your thing about it taking Moonbug taking kind of ten years. I mean, really, Peppa Pig didn't really start to get momentum for a good kind of. I think I mean six seven years in terms of its consumer product. Oh no! It was uh, you're absolutely right. It was it was. Uh... It was around and it was being well marketed by the guys at Contender, but it just didn't have that breakthrough point. Um, you know, to their credit, they kind of stuck with it and they stuck to their principles. And I think you're right. There's a, a lot of people within that kind of Contender group who who deserve kind of praise and, and credit for it. Um, it's always very difficult to say what's the moment that you know made it go from being you know one of the pack to the leader of the pack, but. Um, I mean, I like to think that a key thing to it was the quality of the idea, the quality of the characters, the the storytelling. And I think that's that's why um, I think there will always be and should always be a place for independent companies, uh, you know, create uh, smaller creators, because uh, I think that's really the, the the melting pot of good original ideas and original thinking. Um, I think the other thing I would say as well, I, I, I expect to see. Um, you know, more sort of partnerships where, for example, I think um, Ardman are working with Netflix at the moment on, you know, some new new production. So I think we'll see some some new partnerships developing um, where perhaps, you know, traditional partnerships will change and, and people will have to kind of, um, you know, make up kind of new, new alliances. Um, and also I think what we'll see is we'll see kind of um, rights being developed out of kind of areas like, you know, I think a good example is I mentioned arts and crafts being really successful. Um, you know, Crayola is a supersized brand in the arts and crafts area. I think they've got every chance to 
go on and take that into you know a variety of areas including you know tv formats so i think it won't always just be about um character driven uh, kind of content there can be other sources for content and i think we need just to be kind of open-minded to where content can come from as well absolutely i mean one of the things that you both touched upon was in a way that we're going through a transitional phase when you when you look at something like Peppa Pig that really depended on it needed a broadcaster and um, to really get behind that and give it distribution whereas now there are quite a lot of different outlets in which you can kind of broadcast content uh, do you think you we're going to see more and more toy companies start to kind of almost behave like media companies um, rather than feel like they need that partnership with a broadcaster I think so. I think it's happening. You know, I, I, um, every time I look at Moose products, I always, uh, I always see uh, sort of hidden in there somewhere on the on the uh, the press release the fact they're doing X amount of webisodes to support it. So, um, and and this has been going on for a little while now. So, and it's a great way to test relatively cheaply. You know, the production is obviously a bigger cost, but actually getting it, you know, online is relatively cheap. And then, of course, you can test, see what works, what doesn't, what the feedback is, and, and then take it further, and maybe even then take it to a much bigger broadcaster. So I think we get, we're absolutely going to see that. I mean, there's hardly a day goes by when, we, when we're looking at our own brands, our own products, and saying, what's the content? So, uh, you know, I think all toy companies will be doing this. So you, you, you're going to see this just, again, increase at a, at a faster rate. Yeah, I, I would I would sort of echo that and just very briefly say again, without sounding like uh, I'm an all all our yesterdays kind of person, um, I do sort of reflect on my time at Fox Kids and we, as well as people like Bandai, we had quite strong partnerships with people like Hasbro and Mattel. And um, I remember 25 years ago, um, Hasbro making an Action Man TV series. Um, and I think, um, you know, then realising it was probably quite difficult to broadcast it in the UK because of broadcast regulations. But obviously, 25 years later, uh, we have a very different kind of media landscape with kind of different rules and different routes to market. So I think I think the the field is open for, you know, toy companies to become content providers. I'm just going to come to you, Richard, actually, and then um, actually Ian as well, because you both have some educational licenses. So we've spoken about the different sources for brands, whether it's toy companies or Crayola or gaming. We know that's a rich vein of, of content that we will see coming through. Going to educational licenses that you both have, and given that we've all been forced into this role of educator, um, or many of us as parents in this uh, last 18 months, let's talk about educational licenses and toys that teach. Do you think that, that consumers are demanding more than just play value of some toys and licensed products these days, Richard? Um, well, I remember when we, um, we launched the Science Museum 16 yeah, I think it was the very first brand, actually, that licensed brand that we took on. And um, it had about, I don't know, 50, 60 licensees at that time. So we came from nowhere. Um, and we spotted a gap in the market, that white space that we talk about for product um, where that hasn't been licensed. And, uh, and we, we had some fantastic success, five, six million dollars at wholesale every year just in the UK. So it's a lovely bedrock for our business. 
So I don't think it's a new thing that, that this sort of parental approval of a toy that's got an educational slant to it or an aspect to it. Um, and, and there is a lot of stuff out there now that there wasn't 16 years ago. So is it a trend? Um, it's a trend. It's going to keep. It's going to keep going. I think. I think there are actually two areas here that are going to be a bit of a hockey stick in the trend. I don't think we're we're on it with with the educational toys just yet. I think it's going down that route, and I think it will then suddenly really take off. Um, but it's not at that taking off point. We've signed um, a brand called Popular Science. Um, about a year ago and developed a whole range of science products, science toys. Um, it's a famous brand, particularly in the States, very big brand in the States. It's getting great traction. And I, I think two years from now, it'll suddenly have its moment where everybody will wake up and say, we've got to be doing this, you know, toys that, 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 that are overtly educational, but fun. Um, the other trend that I do think um, is, is, is an absolute hockey stick and is happening now is, of course, the eco-awareness piece um, and how that merges in licensing is going to be an interesting uh, thing to watch. So we're working, you know, my scientists, uh, co-founders, they're from an eco, uh, from environmental sciences background, so they've wanted to do something for a long time. So I think there'll be kind of emerging, there'll be educational eco-toys in, in our in, in, coming from wow stuff um and there'll be some big groundbreaking things coming out i think we've got some but i think lots of people will have their own uh, innovation in eco-friendly product coming through so so i think educational toys it's, it's absolutely on trend but i don't think it's taking off at that rapid rate just yet um eco products is we're right on the cusp of that absolutely taking off and how about you ian have you picked up any demand from consumers and the ones that are buying toys uh, for things that are slightly more educational or um, like Richard, have you spotted other trends coming through? Um, I, I would say, I think, I think educational toys uh, have always, there's always been a, a kind of a stream of those within the, certainly the toy category and certain licenses have kind of um, partnered into, into that direction, but it's not necessarily been, um, what I would call part of the mainstream of licensed toys. Um, what what I think is happening, um, and slightly sort of fired up by kind of one of the trends we touched on earlier, is that because there is more um, kind of access to media for individuals, um, I think you know you, you've got more and more kind of um, blogs, websites, podcasts, etc., which are looking at kind of reviewing toys uh, from a consumer point of view, um, a parent's point of view, a fan point of view. So I think what we're seeing is that um, you know more toy products are kind of critiqued and challenged and reviewed. And certainly in the kids space, I think that probably one of the things that they might be benchmarked against is their kind of um, educational value, their learning value, and um, in the old sense, their sustainability. You know, once you've got them out of the box, how long will that kind of kind of keep a kid interested and how long a, a kind of a play value has it? So I think what we're probably seeing is I think toy companies and license licensing agents, IP owners are probably, and I think it's a good thing, are probably putting a lot more thought into product development. Um, you know, Wow Stuff, I think, you know, I'm not just saying because Richard's on, on the call, but they've always been a company that have kind of taken their time 
and considered what they're doing and invested in uh, product development and thought about what they're doing. Um, that's not always been the case in the licensing world. That's not always been the case with you know toy companies and you know agents like myself. But I think now we all have to be a little bit more authentic about what we're doing and we have to think about who's going to buy the product why is this product being made and what's its purpose and what's the role of the license within that product um, and I think actually if you do that properly that opens up a whole channel of new opportunities because what you're doing is you're actually bringing the the, the key values from the property that you represent to the to the product that you're developing so uh, a very simple example from from my side recently um not in toys as such but in sort of a related area in um comic and magazine publishing we've just worked with a company called uh, signature publishing to do an ardman arts and crafts uh, comic magazine uh, and that has uh, cover mounts like uh, clay kits and things like that and the whole thing has been developed as a true partnership where ardman have kind of like worked on the projects that go into it the step by steps the cover mount content relates fully to what's in the magazine and it all kind of goes back to very authentically goes back to Ardman's experience of model making and arts and crafts, which has been forged by their day to day business as an animation company, but also their experience from live events and what they do with their model making. So I, I kind of feel the challenge for licensing um, is, is to try and make products that actually have a a purpose or authentic and they're on brand and part of that i think will be more in the education and learning area that's that's really interesting i mean you've you've actually already answered a question that i was going to ask you therein which was about if licensees needed to work harder do you think it kind of just basically comes down to not kind of resting not being complacent about what the license is giving you and making sure the idea works as hard as it can uh, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think one one sort of area that we haven't really touched on in huge depth is obviously the role of retail and retailers. And, um, you know, I think traditionally um, the licensees, you know, owned that kind of relationship. Certainly over the last five to 10 years, there's probably been a bit of a shift in that. And the, you know, the licensing agents and the IP owners have had sort of more relationship, more contact with retailers and maybe, because of that, I think some licensees have taken their foot off the gas in terms of, you know, how to, to manage and develop the retail side of the business. Um, and I think um, there's probably more work to be done by licensees on developing new channels of distribution, whether that's in the physical world of retail or it's in the online world, but also um, as things open up and perhaps, you know, more things you know, go back to normal in terms of, you know, live events and attractions, are there opportunities with pop-up retailing, those kind of things. Um, but I think it's even more just in the basics. I think that, that, that perhaps 20, 25 years ago, you could, as a licensee, buy a strong license and the license would effectively sell itself. And again, I'm simplifying things, but they might pop along to Woolworths and get a listing in Woolworths and have a great business on the, back, on the on the back of that. Clearly, those dynamics have changed. And I think some licensees um, have got to probably work harder and learn a bit more about how they get involved in marketing licensed products. So whether that's through kind of social media, um, you know, traditional advertising, PR, etc. I think I think a lot of them haven't 
really kind of uh, tapped into that kind of skill set. And I think they will need to do more of that. I think there will be need to, as I say, a bit more on the retail development. But I also think uh, they'll have to think harder about the product and product development and what is the intrinsic value in that product that's actually going to inspire a consumer to actually buy it. Because most licensed products will come at a premium price. And I think, you know, consumers can see through a product that's just a licensed version of a standard product. And I think their preference and desire now is to actually buy more authentic products that have, you know, that long lasting play value and actually represent the brand as well as it can. But also if you do that well, you can actually make a product that's actually superior to a non-licensed product because it's actually true to the brand. And it's what you're bringing out the elements that actually um, people like about it, why they watch the program, why they're a fan. And that needs to be translated into the product. Ian. You, you've mentioned in your answers emerging retail channels, actually. So expand on that a little bit. How are consumers buying now and how can licensing and retail work together better? Uh, yeah, no, I think, I think um, there has always been a, a relationship between retail and licensing. And um, again, I am going to sort of show my age. And I remember many, many times sitting in the reception at Woolworths on um Marylebone Road, waiting to see the various buyers. And um, there, there, it makes good sense for licensing to be in touch with retail in terms of you know, providing information, updates, highlights, that kind of thing, because then the retailers and retail buyers will have an awareness of what's in the pipeline, so it won't kind of creep up on them as a surprise. However, shuttle forward to you know, today's market, and as we've sort of talked about, you know, the market's more dynamic, if you like, and there's, it's much more uh, fast moving, fast paced. There's, there's multiple platforms to launch properties from. Um, and I think that makes it harder for you know, conventional retailers to kind of keep abreast of what's happening in licensing. And, and because obviously their traditional buying patterns might be they might be buying six months or a year ahead. And, and therefore, it's hard for them to react to those immediate opportunities. Um, so I think from their side, the more traditional retailers, I think there'll be um, some changes on their part where they'll have to kind of, you know, certainly when it comes to licensed properties in the kids space, where they, if they want to be part of that game um, and they want to have that content on their shelves, on their websites, they'll probably have to adjust how they buy things, how they track properties, how they interact with licensors and licensees. Uh, and conversely, I think the world of kind of digital and e-commerce uh, will open up a lot more opportunities to sell directly to consumers in a kind of uh, a quicker, more efficient way. And, and maybe uh, some of the media companies that we've talked about, you know, they might become a little bit more active in the retail space. I mean, obviously, you know, Amazon, as well as being a retailer, is is now a, a media company and you, you can kind of watch things uh, on Amazon and they're supporting um, kind of IP. So I think there's going to be a lot more kind of crossover um, and linkage between that side of things. Um, I still think there's big opportunities. Again, it sounds strange saying this now when we've just come out of uh, kind of lockdown and the pandemic, but I think there's going to be more opportunities within things like experiential licensing where people um, will go along to a live event and sort of participate in their fandom whether that's 
you know, kids go into Peppa Pig world or adults go into a Doctor Who experience. And a natural kind of link to that will be to have some kind of retailing um, aspect to that. Because again, if it's done in the right way, I think people do want to buy into products as part of their kind of fan experience. So it's, it's, it has to be done again, as I said earlier, it has to be done in an authentic way. So you, you, you sell the right products in the right place at the right time. Um, so I think we'll see more of that. I think we'll see more pop-up retailing. And I, I'm actually a great advocate um, of, I think, what licensing and licensed properties and IP can actually do for the, the high street and for city centres. Um, I was in Winchester yesterday and I actually went to, uh, the reason I went to Winchester was to see the Raymond Briggs art exhibition, which was fantastic to see loads of his original art. But as I walked around Winchester, which I think is a very vibrant city city center it's you know normal times it's got huge tourist traffic because of the cathedral and so on but there were a significant amount of shops that were empty so there were empty shop spaces um i think licensing and licensed products uh, and licensed stores rights holders uh, could really help city centers and town centers at the moment and i think what we should do as an industry is is reach out to some of these um city centres, the people that are kind of doing regenerations who are responsible for, um, you know, bringing people into, into shopping centres and, and town centres. And I think we could have a whole series of pop-up shops, pop-up experiences that feature well-known and famous characters, and they will be there to sell product, but they'll also be there to play a role in revitalising um, retail. And, you know, I might be looking at it quite simplistically in that sense, but I think if we all got our heads together, I think, you know, in that respect, uh, licensed properties could actually be really good ambassadors for uh, traditional retailing and help um, play a role in revitalizing some of those uh, town centers. I think you're right. I mean, the way you're descri- describing that kind of route, it kind of feels like the that route to market has become kind of more complex to sort of navigate for licensees and uh, and toy producers than it might have been, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. I always remember um, I was heading up the brand partnership content division at Nickelodeon, and I had this chat with, I think it might have been somebody from the entertainer, but it was one of the toy retailers, and they were saying that ultimately that on that shelf you had space for, I don't know, three or four licensed toys and the their one space only kind of became available each year because the rest of that shelf was winnie the pooh mickey mouse kind of evergreens that are always going to be um but when you were describing the situation now it feels like that kind of dominance of the of the toy shops and that shelf space it's in a very different kind of area now is that right is it kind of a lot more complex for licensees and toy brands yeah i'll answer that very briefly obviously richard has got perhaps more direct experience of being a licensee and supplying the the kind of retail market but i think you know your analysis is absolutely right one of the biggest challenges when you're launching a new property is who who can you displace from the shelf and you know the it's displaced the, the space i suppose that's the kind of the the mantra and that's becoming more difficult because the, the the people that have the incumbents have you know got better at kind of protecting their space they're perhaps more embedded with some of those retailers uh but actually you know conversely i think having 
new types of retail, whether that's e-commerce or more kind of um, specialist retail, like fan-based kind of um, retailers, I think that does open opportunity for properties to kind of get a presence and to be kind of you know direct to consumer. Um, however, I think you know it probably places more of a burden on the toy licensees in terms of having maybe to service more accounts and you know maybe um, you know they're not necessarily shipping as bigger numbers. I think that's probably one of the trends that's happening as well is that broadly speaking across all kinds of product formats, maybe retailers are committing to lower units when they're they're starting and testing and, and that that can be a problem to kind of build up some momentum. But I, I, I think there are, um, you know, signs of optimism and you kind of look at also new types of companies emerging. So if you look at someone like Funko with their pop vinyl business, um, they've kind of, in a sense, created a new category. Um, and that category has been driven by fans, whether they're young, old or ancient like me. Um, but there, there is a kind of a fan culture that's created a, a product stream and a move within um, licensing and product. And in turn, those products pop up, uh, forgive the pun, but they pop up in all kinds of different retailers. They're not just in what we would have described as a conventional toy retailer. You know, you can go into, say, an HMV, you can go into a bookshop, you can go into a comic shop um, and see those represented there, but you can also buy them in multiple kind of locations online as well. So I think I think we are we are in a different retail landscape, but I think, again, it comes back to, um, to, to, to finally say, um, you know the, the the content, the IP is the key to the success. Really, I think. I think just adding to that, uh, if I can, I, I think I totally agree there where you're coming from on that, Ian. Um, we we've seen so many times in the last few years being in the toy industry, people seeing the success of Funko and wanting to emulate it, um, but without uh, again talking to a word that Ian used earlier, which is so important in all of this authenticity you know Funko was authentic where it came from with its base of fans and it built upon that you know I think six or seven maybe eight years ago you would never have as a fan of Funko you would never have imagined it would be for sale in Walmart and you would never have imagined it would be for sale in a toy store you know it was the domain of geeks and it was the hot topics that sold it but because of its authenticity um it, it, it did it did pull through and friends of those geeks uh, that looked up to them thought they were cool and trendy looked up to their older brother thought this is cool I want to buy this and it and it's become mass we we saw lots of brands then try and emulate that without that authenticity and absolutely fail we came out with a brand um, look watching all of that but also had a, a real because we were always working with these tier one brands and we love brands we were thinking if we did something it wouldn't be a copy of a of a Funko, you know, it wouldn't be a stylized chibi character on its own that becomes a collectible. Maybe it's got a broader base that it sits on. You know, we wanted something toyetic because we're in the toy business. So we came out with Wow Pods, which is a swipe to like function uh, and, and adds to it one of those um, big draws in the toy industry has been a massive draw as a feature in toys for some years now, which is the mystery reveal, the hidden reveal. For us, it's UV light, you swipe and it, and it Perhaps uh, a, a hidden icon that you couldn't see before. That that's interesting. That's that's actually now two years since we launched it, um, and it again, it's one of those things that looks like an overnight success because it's like a top 
100 toy across Amazon. It's number one in bobblehead figures, uh, although it's strictly not just a bobblehead, uh, number one in play action figures. But we are seeing what, what Ian's described. We're seeing now fans, if you get that right product, um, have got such a massive thirst for it, if it's right, and, uh, and it relies on a toy company doing it correctly. It requires, it requires the licensor to totally buy in and support it as well. And that brings me to this other point that, that you're talking about, Ian, as well. Licensors, um, how much are they, they getting involved with the retailer relationships and driving their brands and helping and supporting their brands? We've always seen that a licensor talk has got a division that talks directly to the retailer. And as a toy company, we talk directly to the retailer and then separately, we talk directly to the licensor. At what point do they all, they all sit in the same room? It, it does happen, but it happens more rarely, I think. And, and that brings me to then another point. At what point, we've seen Hasbro buying media companies. When is a media company going to buy a toy company and get a vertical integration there, but doing it from a media perspective? So that's not something we're really seeing at the moment, but that could be something that happens. And then, of course, one voice one conversation with the retailer, retailer, you know, we, this is our brand, here's our products, you know, and they are our products and, and, you know, and fighting for that shelf space because the buyer is, you know, again, as Ian says, he's seeing so many different products, you know, a gaming brand just suddenly comes from nowhere, you know, Fall Guys, Among Us, and, it, you know, suddenly a deal is done and merchandise is ready to go and the retailers have already got the shelf space filled. So, so what, you know, what happens there? You know, and um, but I think it, you know, there's going to be some, there will be always some significant changes. I think that could be one. Yeah, I think that's a really, as we draw to a close, that's a really lovely segue into that last question, actually, in terms of we've spoken about trends, we've spoken about the convergence of media and toy, we've spoken about how retail, uh, the convergence of the experiential with more traditional forms of, of retail. So I'm going to ask you both in turn uh, to gaze into your crystal ball. We've, we've talked about current trends and things that are happening. Richard, what do you think is gonna be the next big thing? What's coming through that excites you at the moment? Um, I'm gonna pour water on the fire a little bit here. Um, do, I, do, I, do I see lots of different things, you know, gaming, you know, mobile gaming, and brands coming off the back of that. But I've seen that for a few years and there's been as many or even more that just haven't worked, even though, even though it's the target audience, it's the kid eight to 12, you know, Heartland toys, um, and they've developed toys off the back of that. Some brands are just not toyetic. You know, some movies are just not toyetic. So it's very much making sure you align with, with, with that and make sure that, you know, is that brand toyetic? So am I seeing, you know, any significant trends? I think, yeah, the, the Funko, the Wow Pods, that, that kind of offering a platform product and overlaying it with brands, if it's done really, really well, and that's a very difficult thing to do. Um, sometimes as much luck than judgment uh, or having um, an age-old thing to build on, like Funko did with its authenticity. So I think you know brands like that. I think will remain strong. You now they're predicting the demise of Funko, and it's only got stronger. And I think um, some of those brands are here to stay. Um, other trends: publishing, going into TV and movies. So brands coming from unorthodox, non-traditional places, and then getting getting their brands on screens. 
and mm. becoming bigger and bigger and bigger. But I think a bit like Coco Melon, those that's happening probably now. We don't see what those brands are. They're not above. They're not on the radar. And then ten years from now, we'll be saying, "Look at this overnight success." You know, <laughs> Gruffalo's a great example for us. You know, Gruffalo and Julia Donaldson and Axel Scheffler's books been around for I know twenty years. Um, you know, we were reading them to our kids, and then it's only now that the toys have come out and they're doing really well. But I don't think they'll start to get anywhere near their potential for another three or four years, five mm. years. And then people will say, oh my God, that brand's doing really well. And it's on TV quite often. There's now a series and it's the next pepper, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting point. There's a lot of, uh, that. Uh, there's a lot that happens underneath the waterline for a long time before people really realize that something is a hit. So finally, I'll come to you, Ian, ask you to uh, do the same. Have a look in your crystal ball. Give us that hot tip. What's coming through that um, gets you excited about the future of our business? Um, I think um, what I would say is um, I think there's going to be more crossover of traditional businesses where, um, you know, when I started out in licensing, we would sit down and you know put together our target list of licensees for a licensing program. And you would have you know two or three companies per category, even down to, you know, you might have four potential people for jigsaws and four people for socks and so on. Um, and I think what we'll see is we'll see those traditional lines will become more blurred so that, you know, licensees. And um, I think the other thing we'll see as well is we'll probably see um, the blurring of lines in terms of what companies are doing. So if we talk about uh, publishers and, you know, traditional publishers who are known for publishing books, I expect that we'll see them kind of moving more into what we would describe as toy space. So you, you know, traditionally, there's always been added value publishing. Most classic example is a, a book with a plush, either you know, a puppet sort of book or a book with a separate plush. Um, but I'd expect to see people like publishers doing more that would be described as toyetic. And conversely, we might see you know, toy companies entering the publishing space so I think what we'll see is more blurring of the traditional lines and I think probably hopefully a bit more dynamic creative thinking where people are not sort of um, kind of uh, held back by what they see as their traditional space and they'll operate in new ways and I think from that kind of um, area that's where you get breakout kind of things like Funko and the fact that it's kind of fan fan fans embrace it it's fan driven properties those kind of things um a last thing I would say is um you know I I think it's always interesting when people say gaming's the the, the new big thing and I picked up a, a magazine the other day and it reminded me I think that Sonic the Hedgehog is 30 years old this year and um Again, I'm going to sound like I'm repeating myself, but I worked on Sonic the Hedgehog in my first licensing company. And we did things like, uh, I think the, the most strangest thing we did was blue ketchup with HP sauce. So it was Sonic blue ketchup. So I think what I'm trying to say there is that we can always think that something's new, but it doesn't do any harm to look back sometimes and see what lessons we can learn from past licensing experience and perhaps use some of the sort of like the modern way of doing things to improve on what we've done before. So I think there is, um, there's a good tradition and history in licensing and there's a good body of work to look at now, you know, 30, 40, 50 years plus. And I think we need to learn some of the lessons from, 
you know, the successes and perhaps some of the mistakes that have been made before as well. What a great way to tie it up. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, fantastic insight to kind of to end it on. Uh, thanks very much, guys. It's been uh, it's been a real pleasure, and it's been really, really insightful and uh, interesting. It's given yeah lots of stuff to think about. Yes, it's been really great. Yes, it does does remind me why I love what we do. Why we get up in the morning. This this alchemy, trying to figure out how we are going to create the next big thing, whether it's a media property toy or all together. It's uh, yeah, it's great. Really interesting. So thank you very much for giving up your time today. No, it's been uh, very enjoyable and uh, uh, it's made me sort of think I've got to come up with some new stories. I can't always look uh, 30 years ago. I've got to kind of make some new history now as well. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Although I think blue ketchup is due a renaissance for sure. (laughs) It is, yeah. yeah. I don't know know if we'll get that past the censor these days though. (laughs) Yeah, thanks very much for, for having us, guys. Thank you. No, thank you. Have a lovely rest of the day. Okay, take care. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate this episode and subscribe to the series. It would be enormously appreciated. And thank you very much for listening. We really hope that you tune into the next episode. Bye.